0: Today's book draws on a decade of research and 50 case studies to present six mindsets that help business leaders and nonprofit equivalents be more confident and creative about strategic problem solving and be successful where others are afraid to act or act recklessly. The concept is modeled after innovative companies such as Patagonia who are not afraid to step out into risk using small moves that build capabilities, assets, Understanding the imperfectionist strategy creates opportunities not available to those with conventional strategic thinking based on old structural models. The world is changing faster and faster, with increasing uncertainty and threat of external disruption in every business and non-profit segment. Conventional approaches to strategy development, assuming a world devoid of probability, no longer work. It is a great pleasure to welcome a friend, a friend of the show, previous guest and author of his brand new book, The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. Charles Kahn, welcome to the show. Hayden, it's so good to be here and it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to have you back on and I've been dying to tell our audience I wanted to thank you in person for your own massive contribution to my book. Charles read each chapter. I tortured him, send them <laughs> as I was writing it, and he kindly read and gave me wonderful feedback to make it a better book. So, from me, from my heart, thank you, brother. It was my uh, sincere pleasure,
1: and as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, uh, reading your book that way helped me write a better book. I hope. Um, I think you do such a good job of weaving stories in together with theory that it makes you hungry for the next line. And, uh, you know, I I hope we've done that a little bit with this book,
0: you absolutely did. I I love this book. And I want to say, so the last book we covered is massive bestseller, huge amount of positive reviews on Amazon, Bulletproof problem solving. And this book, the imperfectionists serves as a kind of a yin and yang type model. So Bulletproof problem solving is like frameworks, it's a little bit of a heavier reading but it goes beautifully together with imperfectionists, which is more story based, etc. So we're going to share some of those stories today. Charles, I want to say as well, I don't know, when you told me you were writing that book, I was like, how is that guy gonna get time? (laughs) Because I want to share your experience, because people might not know this about you, because your young demeanor betrays your age in some way in a positive (laughs) way. Because Mm -hmm. Charles is a cross section leader, conservationist and entrepreneur. He's co-founder of Monograph Capital, a life sciences venture firm in London and San Fran. He was previously CEO of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford. He is board chair of Patagonia and sits on the Nature Conservancy European Council. He was founding CEO of Ticketmaster CitySearch and was a partner at McKinsey & Company. And he is a graduate of Harvard, Oxford, and Boston universities. And this is a follow up to, as I said, his previously best selling book, Bulletproof Problem Solving. So huge amount of experience packed into those six mindsets in the book. And if we get through those, we're doing a great job. And I thought, Charles, we were talking about before we came on air about limited. Attention spans or people struggling with time in order to even read a book to get to the end of the book. And I thought we'd start. I've started to do this with the show, offer a TLDL, too long didn't listen version. <laughs> and I thought we'd share an overall view of an imperfectionist. And I'll tee you up with this qu- great quote that I read in your book. And it comes from Jeff Bezos in the 2015 Amazon annual report. You wrote, Jeff Bezos's words as follows. From very early on in Amazon's life, we knew we wanted to create a culture of builders, people who are curious, explorers, even when they're experts, they are fresh with a beginner's mind. A builder's mentality helps us approach big hard to solve opportunities with a humble conviction that success can come through iteration, invent, launch, reinvent, relaunch, start over, rinse, repeat again, and again, they know the path to success is anything but straight. I thought that was a brilliant line to tee you up to tell us what is an imperfectionist?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I love that quote. Um, and there's a there's a very similar one from Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia in the book, which said, you know, you can study this on and think it out on paper, and spend a long time on strategy, and then you look up and someone's already there. Um, He said, real entrepreneurs take a step forward, see how it's working. And if it's working, they take another step forward. And I think that's very similar to Bezos's uh, uh, sense of this thing. When you look at what Amazon has done, not just in their core business, but in businesses like Amazon Web Services, uh, their entry into consumer financial services, and more recently into healthcare, there's no strategic frameworks right? This is not Porter's Five Forces. You didn't need to go to Harvard Business School in order to understand what they're doing. They're experimentalists. Uh, That's what an imperfectionist is. An imperfectionist doesn't study the book and come up with a perfect strategy and then try and execute that strategy in a world that's changing so quickly. An imperfectionist sets an audacious goal and then begins doing parallel steps, each step of which gives them a better understanding of the game being played, helps them build capabilities, sometimes helps them get assets like uh, intellectual property um, or uh, a smaller company that they can build upon, but fundamentally is bootstrapping themselves toward that audacious goal. In a world that we live in today where, you know, there's programmable biology, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, faster and faster change, and the rise of super competitors like apple and amazon microsoft and google the old way of thinking about things like a chessboard with fellas you know sitting back studying the chessboard doesn't work it doesn't work so an imperfectionist uses an, a, a series of parallel experiments to understand what the world is about
0: and to make strategic moves in real time it's dynamic strategy i want to come back to amazon hopefully we'll have time because I do want to give even at a high level, the six mindsets to our audience. But there's a diagram in the book that you use it together with your own concept of of steps and staircases. And I want to share that as well, because that's a great mindset to understand even the framework of staircases. We'll come back to that. But I'm going to share on the screen here. And if you're listening to us, we'll have empathy for you just listening to the show. But I do recommend have a look at us on YouTube. And also I'll share little excerpts on LinkedIn for people, but I'm going to share on the screen now the six mindsets brought together and we'll start with those mindsets. We'll start with the first one, which is ever curious from the book. So I loved this line and maybe I'll tee you up with this line, Charles from ever curious. You said when great problem solvers seek to close the gap between what they know and what they want to know, curious reduces uncertainty that may strike some readers as counterintuitive, particularly in uncertain times. Wouldn't it be better to rein in curiosity and try to more in certainty? Sounds safe, but it is a recipe to be steamrolled by change. Over to you to share some examples. So in this chapter, you have Edwin Land, Einstein, Bach and Favre, amongst many others. Over to you, Charles. (laughs) Charles
1: Yeah. And, I, you know, so f- for us, um, everything starts with curiosity and when the world's changing really quickly, I think what we all do is want to sort of nestle in and protect ourselves and frankly, not be curious, but to go back to our touchstones, you know, you're an athlete and, uh, as a rugby player, you guys probably had set moves, right? Um, and, and, you know, sometimes those set moves are great because everyone moves in unison. But the truth is, if you only rely on set moves, everyone can predict what you're doing, and they they get to the ball before you and i I, I think that there's this thing as we get older where we get become less and less curious, and as we become more senior we're we're more and more sure of ourselves. that's rubbish. I mean, as we get older, we should become more humble and more open to learning new things so our our first and most important mindset. Is to anchor yourself in curiosity. Instead of saying what, ask why. And you know, th- my favorite example is the is the example about the invention of instant photography. All right, uh, Edwin Land, you know, the famous uh, inventor, was in Santa Fe with his daughter Jennifer. She was uh, five or six years old. They were walking around town. He was snapping pictures with his conventional film camera, and she said. Uh, you know, they'd, he'd taken a picture of something and she said, Daddy, let me see the photo. And, he, you know, he he knelt down and he said to her, well, honey, let me explain to you how photography works. So we've got this film and and we've got to we'll take photos on that and then we'll we'll send it to the drugstore and they'll send it to a lab. And then 14 days later, the lab will send us back the photos. And, you know, she looked perplexed. And as he was making the explanation, he thought, why do we do it that way? He asked the question based on the innocence of, you know, this five-year-old girl and literally as they continued walking around town, he worked out in his head, how you could do instant photography. And that was the beginning of the, of the Polaroid Instamatic camera. And I just love that story. He literally was on the phone that evening to his lawyer, who also happened to be in Santa Fe that day. And they patented the process that he dreamed up in his mind. That's curiosity. Um, you mentioned Eric Feb. So he was just, you know, he was an engineer at, at uh, Nestle and he was interested in uh, coffee. Uh, right. So it's the mainstay of Nestle's business. They had at that time the cafeteria uh, sort of te- de- uh, stovetop coffee. And, um, you know, they had instant coffee, which is huge. Right. He was in Rome and he was walking around Rome with his wife and he noticed like there was this one coffee shop where there was huge queue outside. At all the other coffee shops around, there wasn't any queue. And he, he wondered to himself, what's going on here, right? That's that instinct. What's going on here? He went in there, the place is called St Eustatio's and inside there's this barista called Eugenia, And he's got this old machine and we, we've got a photo in the book because one of our, our uh, young guys actually went there and, and you know, met the team there. He's got this uh, old uh, espresso machine and he, he thinks it's broken, so he's pumping the machine again and again, and it's pumping all this wonderful air into the coffee, making this thick crema on the top, and everyone loves it, right? And so Feb, instead of just thinking, oh, that's interesting, thinks, I wonder how I could do that, right? It took eight years for Nestle to actually act on it, but he figured out the the co- the, the coffee has to be under 20 bars of pressure, and you have to put in this much oxygen. And that's what creates this wonderful mouthfeel to coffee. And he managed to make a a home machine, now called the Nespresso machine. It's $8 billion a year, if you can believe it, um, which mimicked what Eugenia was doing there in Rome, right? That's curiosity. And ultimately, problem solving is driven by curiosity. And strategy is just dynamic problem solving.
0: I'm so glad you brought up Eric Favre, because the, the story is also one of the company giving him the time and the space in order to firstly discover it, but then support him when he has that idea. And that is something that's so lacking in organizations to give them a the psychological safety in order to pipe up and share the idea, and then b to actually back them. And many of our listeners will probably listen to this kind of going, Oh, that would never happen in our company. And through your work in McKinsey and indeed Patagonia, you've seen companies that actually do it right.
1: But it's tough, and you know, you just said it. Like
0: you know, companies
1: they like to run on existing train tracks because that's got them success before. But when the world's changing faster and faster, that's that train track's not going to give you success again. And we don't trust people down inside organizations to do the problem solving. We assume that the Usually the fella up top is gonna make the decisions and we're gonna implement it down below. That's rubbish. You need to actually reverse that. And isn't it amazing that a company the size and success of Nestle actually gave this guy room? Um, He's an actual rocket scientist, but they gave him room even more impressive because what he was doing was actually challenging their core business, which is coffee, which was their most profitable business. And he was coming up with an alternative technology that easily could have undermined all that. Instead, of course, you know, they they now have got three lines of business, all of which are good. And, you know, how they had the courage to trust someone down in the organization like that, I don't know. I don't know. I wish most big companies did, and they don't.
0: It's a lovely segue to the next mindset. And, and I have to admit my personal favorite, I love the I love even the concept of this, which is Dragonfly Eye and what it, it speaks to the idea of the organization going, okay, here's this guy, a rocket scientist or anybody else in the company, because they see it differently. There's value in that. And this is really the core concept of Dragonfly Eye. In here, you share again, multiple great stories. I'll let you pick one. I loved, for example, Ronald Cohn and the Peterborough Bond.
1: So this one, you know, it's, it's sort of like a sister, isn't it, to curiosity, right? Because um, when you're problem solving, especially when you're developing strategies, um, you've got this frame and that frame that you, you always use is your organization's frame. Right. And that must be right. You know, when you're inside a successful organization, you see out through the lenses of what's worked before and. What I love about this image of the dragonfly is 3,000 separate lenses that make up this compound, beautiful compound eye, is it, it's a reminder to see things through different lenses and maybe to zoom in and zoom out. Um, we borrowed the term from Philip, Te- Philip uh, Tetlock, who's done wonderful work on superforecasters. And superforecasters always see things through multiple perspectives before they make a guess, right? And if we can make it concrete, in a company, you'd want to at least take the lens of your customer and imagine, what is what does our product look like from their perspective? Or a supplier, you know, we're always complaining about our suppliers, right? Or a potential competitor. What would When they look at us, what do they see as vulnerability, right? Even if you just use those small lens changes, you can get much smarter about your strategy. So, you know, you mentioned Ronnie Cohen, Sir Ronald Cohen, but he likes to call himself Ronnie. He's a he's a hero, just a legend in venture capital, private equity in London. But the most curious and playful man you'll ever meet, um, uh, born in Egypt, you know, an Egyptian Jew came to uh, came to the UK as a kid with literally a cardboard suitcase, went to Harvard Business School, built this great career. But later on in life, he quit uh, at 50 in order to do good things. And one of the things he was trying to do, working with, you uh, uh, the government in the UK is to reduce recidivism. So people who repeat a crime after already being convicted and imprisoned. And he had some folks in front of him who were social reformers, and they were talking about recidivism. And he just got this flash all of a sudden, what if you designed a financial instrument, which would be good for the government, because it would give them a, re- a reduced uh, uh, cost if it didn't work, and and it would be good for investors because if it worked, they'd get an extra return. And he created this sort of wonderful instrument, which would actually fund social change with a positive feedback loop. So the bond would earn a higher return if it, if the investment in, uh, in this case, in people not going back to jail worked better. And the government would have to pay a bit more if it worked better. But of course, if it works better, they save a lot because each prisoner who reoffends costs 50,000 pounds a year. Right, he figured out all these angles from looking at it through this different lens—the lens of a financial instrument. Right, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. Now there's five hundred billion dollars of these things out there.
0: I love that, and and you know what? It was really useful for me was I was explaining to my son. So as I was reading the book, I I was in the car with my son. I was waiting for him from one of his uh, training sessions, and I was waiting in the car, and. I read about, for example, obesity, and that many, many people, when they see somebody obese, they'll kind of condemn them and their behavior versus actually, well, what's behind that? And when you start to have dragonfly eye, and then you start to add in some of the other mindsets and start to use them systematically, you start to see, well, what's behind that? And again, this came through in that chapter about obesity, which was absolutely fascinating probably too much to talk about at a very deep level, but maybe at a high level, we might share it.
1: Yeah, sure. And I mean, I think you can almost do it in a line, which is, as you say, like our our mind says that obesity is a personal failing. But in fact, the biggest driver of obesity, the highest correlation, we did some very sophisticated um, Bayesian statistical analysis uh, led by a wonderful professor in Australia called Sally Cripps. And what she worked out with this um, incredibly sophisticated analysis and a bunch of fresh data sets is the best predictor of whether someone's going to be obese or not is how many years of school their mom was able to complete, right? And so if you can keep um, young girls in school longer, this this uh, huge social problem of obesity could be strongly affected. And you know, and, uh, and let's contrast it with the you know uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, and otherwise a quite remarkable guy. What he tried to control obesity is is making uh, big soft drinks unavailable to folks. But but that's rubbish. I mean, people's tastes have already shifted. By the time they get to the point they want a 64 ounce sugary drink, right? Doesn't have any impact.
0: I was I again, another point that came to me from that was that, you know, being able to eat healthily and train and, and look after yourself and take supplementation is actually a privilege because it's a privilege of education, and also being able to afford because it's expensive to eat healthy, like all these stores that uh, provide cheap foods, uh, really convenient foods are actually in more impoverished areas as well. So it's so systematic, systemic, all these problems, and your book really helped from an empathetic perspective to add empathy to a lot of stuff, which is really part of Dragonfly Eye. I'm, I'm keen to keep moving to try and share all the ideas. I love, absolutely love our current behaviour. I love the term, the mindset involves testing and deliberation, which may be why most organisations are not very good at it, because they're used, as you said, the train tracks, this is what we do, this is what we've done, this is what's got us to where we are today. But maybe we'll, in interest of your time, link it to what I said earlier on, I was hoping to plant the seeds of Amazon. And I mentioned your staircase model as well. So on the screen, I'm going to share your staircase model. And then I'll follow up where you map that model to Amazon's beautiful entry into the financial industry, which is a brilliant model to and the visuals just add to it so so brilliantly. So I'm going to share them on the screen. And over to you.
1: Yeah, well, so this is a, a, you know, the the third the third mindset says, instead of relying on past data um, and past ways of conceiving something, you should instead, instead, as you're considering your strategic problem, do experimentation. And I love this idea. So when Amazon uh, decided it wanted to be, have a bigger presence in uh, consumer financial services, so ultimately the huge driver in the economy and a big driver of their own business, they didn't do it by sitting down and coming up with a super complicated strategic plan like a chessboard, right? What they did was they hired a team from a failed FinTech company. They made an investment in another small FinTech company. They licensed a bit of IP. They invested in this little company called Bill Me Later. They acquired this little company called TextPayMe that later became uh, Amazon WebPay. They launched their own version of a of a little card reader called uh, Local Register, competing with Square, now called Cube. Um, and they hired a, they hired this team uh, from another from other little startup. None of that looks like a, like the way a big company would go at something, right? I mean, you know, these guys have this huge balance sheet. Um, they could have just bought a bank or a consumer financial services company. Now, they're experimenting. They're learning. They're hiring a few people who are smart in a particular space. They're getting a bit of IP. They're starting to learn how the game is played in consumer financial services. And then they begin to make larger and more confident moves. And you can see that out on the right-hand side of the staircase, right? Eventually launching Amazon Pay, which has a 24% payment share across the US economy, right? And more recently launching their own credit cards um, and even broader uh consumer financial services, all from these puny and small beginnings, right, very much based in experimentation and beautifully, from my perspective uh you know from a strategy perspective they these were moves that were relatively modest in cost, and they were reversible if they didn't work, there's no harm done right that's at the very heart of what imperfectionism is. Experimentalism.
0: I love that, and I wanted to link it then to something else because you mentioned how we get stuck in our frames, and and I love I love that image of being stuck in a rut. Like literally, you're you're stuck in a mental rut, and it's difficult to get out of that because that's the way your brain works. It figures a way out. If that way's been successful and it's been primed with emotional feelings and neurochemicals, it's even more difficult to change it. And I wanted to share with you, I'm sure you heard about this brilliant study that was done by the unconventional economist, Professor David Romer. So in he wanted to, t- to figure out, should a team take a kick in NFL when it's presented to them? So you know the way you see this in sports, it's in rugby as well. It's like, take the kick, take your points when they're on offer. And Romer analyzed NFL data spanning 1998 to 2004 and determined that NFL teams should not punt or kick when facing fourth down with less than four yards to go for the first, right? So this is the technical term here. But what what I wanted to share was was because even when people were presented with the data to go, this is counterintuitive, but it works, most people opted to go for the kick. And I'm linking it here to a brilliant, brilliant study that the wine lovers out there will absolutely hate me (laughs) but when you talk about the story of the bordeaux on premier week which dates back to 58 a.d so some traditional traditions need updating
1: yeah i mean that's it and it's beautiful you know this yale economist you know did this mathematical model about whether it really made sense or not and of course you know it doesn't um and as you point out that's um one of these things where we've convinced ourselves something, and maybe maybe you're right. It's a it's a it's a neurochemistry problem. And I always wondered, you know, when you look at something like BlackBerry or Nokia, right, who had these incredible positions, but they couldn't see what was coming and they couldn't alter their own behavior, right? And I I, I think that's what's going on here. But if you can be an experimentalist, right, and actually be open to new data. You can be you can be your own disruptor instead of being disrupted, right? And you know you're the king of disruption, right? You wrote a you wrote a whole book about it. But how do you avoid being disruptive, disrupted? Experiment so that you disrupt yourself.
0: That's just football. So the the stakes you could say are, are not that high. There's nobody going to die or anything like that. But some place where the stakes are really high and people have died is space and People don't think of him this way and perhaps think that he's loads of cash to burn, but I love the portrayal you do of Elon Musk throughout the book.
1: Yeah. And, you know, here, I think when people, many, in many, and many business people think, oh yeah, I hear about being an experimentalist, right? That only works for these little internet companies where they can do, you know, A, B testing because they can do two different versions of a website. Doesn't work in the real world. Really? You know, when I think about SpaceX and, you know, whether you like Mr. Musk or don't like Mr. Musk, you have to admit it's impressive. He read this trend towards space and we've seen, God, there are something like 50 launches a week um, in uh, in, in, overall in terms of satellite launches. He read a space in advance and then he totally changed the game. Uh, When you look at NASA over time, they're doing three or four launches a year. Musk is now doing between 20 and 30 launches a year with SpaceX. So what is that allowed? Well, it's allowed them to do all this experimentation about what the materials are that go in and manufacture, that go into building a rocket. And so they are now manufacturing almost all their components in-house. They've used um, 3D printing and a bunch of novel materials technologies to lower the cost and increase the safety at the same, at the same time. And the net effect of this much higher rate of experimentation and internal skunk works is they've managed to lower the cost of launching a kilogram into space by ninety-five percent? I mean that's crazy. If you if you ask the NASA engineers, could you take ninety-five cents out of every dollar of launch cost? They'd said you're crazy, right? They've done that the experimentation, and you know most recently we saw the uh, what do they call it? The unplanned disassembly of one of their biggest rockets, right? They're not afraid. To experiment, of course, they didn't. They didn't put people or animals in that uh, uh, big rocket because they knew that there were still many experimental components of that, and they weren't. Uh, I'm sure they were disappointed, but they weren't shattered by what happened, because they learned so much from the uh, failures and from the successful elements of that launch. Even in the heavy industry, the heaviest industry of all, perhaps they're willing and able to be experimentalists.
0: There's a There's a great quote. I was looking for it here to share with our audience. You said about Musk was asking for a computer costing 100th of the typical cost of a NASA computer, which was 10 million. And the engineer, he said, noted in traditional aerospace, it would cost you more than $10,000 just for the food at a meeting to discuss the costs of avionics, which I thought was brilliant. And the book's peppered with those lovely little anecdotes, I have to say. So it's, it's lovely. And it's so difficult to choose which one to go for. The next mindset is collective intelligence, one that you and I share a huge passion about, which is it, it leans into okay, dragonfly. I we understand what that is. But what do you do about it? And what can you get out of it? And this becomes even more interesting in a world where AI is finally getting the the shrift it deserves, and people are actually paying attention to it, but also seeing it as well, this is going to take away jobs, and it will it will cheese slice jobs but when you use it to your advantage, it provides huge advantages. I have an image I'm gonna share on the screen, Charles. In it, it gives loads and loads of the examples, and I'll let you just pick whichever one you feel best represents the mindset.
1: Well, so this is one of the most important mindsets, right? I mean, um, in, in traditional companies, we think of the boundaries of the firm as sort of the edge of our knowledge. And we assume that everything outside of that is external to us. And this mindset says, how can we harness collective intelligence, the intelligence of everybody, um, sometimes called collective wisdom? How can we crowdsource better ideas inside our own company instead of having the arrogance to assume that we have the smartest people in the room? Bill Joy, you know, the, the famous founder of Sun Microsystems, said, hey. The smartest people aren't in your room. They're probably working for somebody else. And he he literally uses the analogy: How can we get them working in our garden? And one of the first uh, ways of accessing uh, collective intelligence was open source software. You know, remember Joy was at uh, Bill Joy was at Berkeley, where they did a lot of the um, uh, development of the Unix language, originally developed uh, at AT and and. Now, Unix is the core kernel that's behind the operating systems of Microsoft and Apple. But that idea of getting, uh, you know, the the way open source uses other people's engineers to help develop, you know, a common system, that idea can be extended remarkably. So the Nature Conservancy is a conservation organization. It's not an artificial intelligence organization. Recently, they wanted to come up with a system that would help them protect uh, endangered uh, uh, tuna species from capture at sea by tuna fishing boats. And what they had to figure out is they've got uh, onboard cameras in these boats. How could you use computer vision to determine what the species was that landed on the de- on the deck and then very quickly make a decision whether to put that fish back over the side or whether that was a fish that could be harvested? They used a, 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 a crowdsourcing platform called Kaggle. Um, and they put up this competition with a $150,000 prize. They got 3,000 entries to this competition and they got this amazing algorithm that, uh, that the winner uh, uh, developed, which allows them in real time aboard, you know, bobbing fishing boats at sea to determine which species has come aboard just by the shape of a gill plate or the shape of a fin. That's now just rolling out um, in Indonesia and soon will roll out more broadly. The Nature Conservancy outsourced this brilliant um, concept and then was able to bring that back inside using machine learning computer vision algorithm, right? And that's just the beginning of that whole idea. So we, we've all heard of TikTok. What's TikTok? What's that about? You know, it was competing against video, um, short form video uh, with uh, Hollywood favorites like Quibi um, and 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 organizations like YouTube, where there was a lot of curation by experts, what these engineers figured out at TikTok was instead of using expert curation, you should use a learning algorithm that figures out what people actually want to see. And obviously, you know, that taken the world by storm. No one knew TikTok's name six years ago. Now it's by far the biggest player in the space. And we could go on, you know, all the other examples, like there's this AI swarms idea where if you have people plus competing artificial intelligence models, learning models, you get better predictions than either people or individual learning models. They can predict sporting events. They can even do a better job predicting cancer right uh, amongst individuals. So this this will transform the world, but you have to be open to it.
0: I often think about how you can use as a consultant. So I work sometimes hand in hand with other consultants, but there's so many... AI platforms out there that you can harness as a consultant and actually do a better job than if I had a 200 person team here. And actually, if you're asking the right questions, and this is what I find so beneficial and why it's such a privileged interview great authors like you every week is the learning that I, I get from that. And then you add it to the learning and the mindset of engaging these different platforms, and you can really get onto different pathways and different ramps. It's it's amazing. I'm, I'm aware of a time and we have two more mindsets. I thought one thing that we say here, and if you don't make a decision, that is still a decision. And it's a risky decision in many, many cases, especially in a world that's transforming so rapidly. And you talk about the taxes here and we all hate taxes, (laughs) but one tax we should probably really try to avoid is rats, right? And I'll let you unpack that. But there's a line here and I want to sing it from the rooftops. You wrote, one might argue that a risk aversion tax is just theoretical, a conclusion based on only surveys of what managers say they would do in hypothetical situations. Perhaps in real life, they are actually bolder. Regrettably, you tell us they aren't. And this has been documented by your former McKinsey colleague, and he says hello to you, by the way, because he was last week's guest, Sven Smith, who showed that the economic surplus for average performers in most industries is zero. Only the top quintile of firms earn returns above their cost of capital, and at least 20% fail to even reach this bar. Managers in 80% of firms are not making the decisions required for their companies to outperform and this once again is one of the reasons you wrote your first book is because you want to help people make decisions better and problem solve like bulletproof and this book gives you then the stories to be able to share throughout the the organization but maybe it'll take us a bit through this idea of rats
1: yeah so uh, rats is risk aversion tax and you know what what um, Smith and, um, his fellow co-authors, including, uh, my, my other dear, dear friend who's called Professor Dan Lavallo, is that managers are frequently frozen and it's worse and worse, right? As the world gets changing faster, people are more likely to become paralyzed in the face of change and think that it's a safer thing not to make a decision. And as you wrote about in your book, that's how you get disrupted. And when you can see um, that uh, Lavallo and others have actually calculated this tax, you know which is what's the cost of not acting when uh, you can actually assess the probability of a particular investment and the cost of not acting is that risk aversion tax so you know they they provide hypothetical examples um, to managers in a series of both small and large studies and even when there's a positive uh, present value to making a decision, managers typically won't make that decision. They would prefer not to act. And that's this idea behind the risk aversion tax. One of the things we hope for with this book, you know, The Imperfectionist, is to give people the confidence to go ahead and step out into that risk. Um, ideally, you do that with steps that are relatively low cost and relatively reversible. This is this really core idea that you see with Andy Jassy and Jeff Bezos at Amazon, they call that a type two decision where it's reversible. And so the organization might might still fail with that particular decision, but it's not a big enough cost to take down the company. And this risk aversion tax, RATS, is the cost when you don't make those decisions. At Amazon, they call those type one decisions, which really are high cost and which are not reversible. We act as if every decision is like that. And of course, only a few decisions are like that. And the very core of this book is go ahead and lean into risk. Go ahead and lean into risk.
0: I found staircases is a really useful tool to help managers get lean into risk. And this, again, was brought up first in your earlier book, but you again have this again in The Imperfectionist. Maybe you'll give a quick overview of this and with a bit of empathy for those people who are listening to us.
1: Yeah, well, so, you know, I mean, it's it's, uh, for those just listening, you can kind of visualize a staircase um, or maybe multiple staircases sort of next to each other. Um, The idea is, uh, do we have uh, enough information and um, uh, perhaps a small enough stake that we can actually make the first few moves toward an audacious goal? We may not be able to see all the strategic moves in front of us, just like a great chess player may not know all the moves that are in front of them, but we know enough to make these first few steps. And um, this is an an idea that Rob and I and a couple of other McKinsey colleagues have been working on for almost 30 years now. Um, Making those steps isn't just unveiling the world in front of us. It's also giving us those additional capabilities because each step actually helps build our understanding of the game being played, helps build our skills and capabilities, and sometimes actually adds assets, as I mentioned, uh, like IP or like a, like a market position. Um, sometimes we, we, we think about the staircase with three dimensions to it. One is how big a stretch is it? You know, so is this way beyond our current capabilities? And sometimes you, if you're not feeling confident, you might want to make steps that are a bit smaller. The second dimension we think about is flexibility. So does this block off another step for us? And again, I think that's the idea of reversibility that you read when you read Jassy's description of this. And then the third step is, can I get some momentum, or the third idea is, can I get some momentum going? Uh, because once teams get going, they often get that confidence that comes with the things that they learn from successful earlier moves. People who make only slow and tentative moves right? Often end up again, making dumb moves. So the the flip side of rats that we talked about a moment ago is people who leap before they look or they bet the farm. In the book, we use examples um, like uh, Rio Tinto's acquisition of Alcan, where they got panicky and they made a multi-billion dollar acquisition that took them 15 years to dig out of. Um Frankly, uh, you know, we talk about Mr. Musk and the wonderful experiments um, at SpaceX. We wonder whether uh, what he's doing at Twitter isn't one of those leap before you look um, moves and whether he may end up uh, regretting that particular move.
0: When you read Sven Smith's book on his colleagues, your your friends from McKinsey, particularly the last week's show, which was Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. One of the ways you can perceive that is, oh, we need to make big bets. And you kind of go, no, 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 no. You make careful bets. And then, if you add a tool like staircases, it becomes really useful. And I want to say this as well. One of the other things, and you've experienced this, is over outsourcing to a consultancy actually deprives your organization of building that muscle themselves. And it's not the goal of a consultancy. A goal of a consultancy should be to help you build the muscle, help you understand the steps. So you have that capability in your organization. For when the rug is pulled, and this is one of the huge drivers of this show as well, Charles. So why I was so keen to share this book, and maybe on that point, you have some advice for a leader or leadership team who wants to bring this and the mindset we're talking about here is the imperfectionist mindset. How to bring that into their organization?
1: Yeah. So I think the most important thing you can do there is to remember that um, strategy really is just dynamic or fluid problem solving. And a lot of times your best problem solvers are the people who are closest to your customers or closer to your potential future customers. And the strategy isn't something we should just do up top where people frankly are often busy with other things day to day. And therefore to actually trust people down below. And if the decisions are not bet the farm decisions and are reversible, to have your strategy actually be developed much closer to the coal face I think that's the single biggest thing you can do. The second thing you can do is to remember that failure where you learn something isn't failure and not to punish people who make a, you know, we talked about rats a second ago. If you make a bet that was a good probability bet and it doesn't work out, that still happens for probabilistic or stochastic reasons. You don't punish those people as long as they made a good bet, right? Right. Just like when you flip a coin, like that could be a reasonable bet. Sometimes it comes the wrong way up. Don't punish people for doing that. As long as they made a thoughtful bet, you should encourage them. I think those are two things we can do. I also, I love the idea of allocating part of our R&D budget to that collective intelligence and crowdsourcing so that you can sort of overcome the hubris that says all good ideas come from inside your organization. And you can become a much better imperfectionist if you're willing to penetrate the boundaries of your own organization by crowdsourcing some cool ideas in from outside. Those are three ideas.
0: Maybe we'll squeeze in a story here because there's an imperfectionist story that is absolutely incredible. And it was the story of Wimbledon. And you're like, how did, talk about actually getting it right. And maybe we'll share this because this is a story. I shared it with a few people and nobody had heard of it. So I'd love you to share this with our audience. Yeah, this is just one of these mind-blowing things, right? You know, that um, you'd think when the
1: pandemic came upon us, right, Um, that an organization all of whose economics are based on a single public event would be completely devastated uh, by the pandemic. And, of course, many organizations were, as you know, like uh, the, the wreckage of the pandemic includes many retailers and lots of live event businesses. It killed those businesses, not Wimbledon. Why? Well, those fellows at Wimbledon, 17 years before, uh, had a risk assessment committee and they figured out that not only was rain in England uh, an ever present risk, right? as you know, oftentimes rained out and they have to move uh, the, the finals around a little bit, but, but the actual risk of pandemic was really significant. And so long, long before the pandemic ever happened, Wimbledon actually uh, was able to create an insurance Um, against these bad potential bad events for which they paid very little because the probability in any one year that a pandemic would occur, especially when there, since there hadn't been a major pandemic since the 1917 influenza epidemic was only a couple of million dollars a year. And they carefully paid that premium every, every year. And when the pandemic came along and they had to cancel Wimbledon, Not only did it not devastate them uh, financially, they were actually able to make payments to almost all the players as well, depending on where they were ranked. Um, And you can imagine the goodwill that that creates in the tennis community. And then when tennis came back, they were able to hit, you know, hit their stride without missing a beat. Right. I I love that. So part of being an imperfectionist is, can I pass off risk to somebody else? Can somebody handle that risk better than me?
0: you know it's funny whenever you share a story like that or you know bill gates ted talk where he mentioned about you know the risk of pandemics or obama said it you know years before five years or so before that we need to invest in this people are kind of that's because they were involved (laughs) the the virus was concocted in wimbledon (laughs) they had so much to gain but uh there's always somebody crying that this is coming. And we need to listen to those voices, which speaks to dragonfly, eye, speaks to collective intelligence. So we've come to the last mindset. And the last mindset is one of my favorites in that it's about the packaging of the knowledge and how you selectively choose how to portray that knowledge to your audience and how important that is. And in the interest of time, I'm going to share a little clip about from one of our favorite uh, thought leaders, I suppose, or thinkers. And I'll let you unpack who it is in a moment, but I'm going to share this and this will tee us up nicely for the last one.
2: Before the event, from information that was available and understanding it was was it fully appreciated everywhere, that this seal would become unsatisfactory at some temperature and was there some sort of a suggestion of a temperature at which the SRB, I guess you call it, shouldn't be run. Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, There was a a suggestion of that. To answer the first question, uh, given the configuration that we were in, that the the seal would function at that temperature. That was the final judgment. But commission member Richard Feynman, after examining the O-ring, had a surprise. I took this stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem.
1: I mean, this is just, you know, I mean, it's quite moving to me. Obviously, he's one of the giants of science. And uh, in addition to science, and he was famous for this, he had a flair for storytelling. And in this particular case, he could have said, I've done a Bayesian statistical analysis and you got your numbers wrong. Uh, even by your own data, um, at that range, we we know that there wasn't o, uh, resilience in the O-ring, which is this critical engine seal. He didn't. He went to the hardware store and um, he bought a this small clamp that he had. And he used that clamp to dunk a, a, an actual O-ring in the water. And he showed that it didn't have resilience in front of this entire televised audience. He did what children do at school called show and tell. And those demonstrations help align people and help change the world better than any um, amount of data and PowerPoint, right? And so if you want to, in addition to all the other things we've talked about, if you you want to be an imperfectionist and you want to get other people aligned behind your bold strategic moves, use show and tell rather than PowerPoint and dry statistics.
0: As a way to show and tell, (laughs) for me, I'm holding up here for those who can see us, look at this beautiful book. And it's, it's a short read as well, which is Which is difficult thing to do it's difficult to write a book like this so short and i have a copy of for grabs if you sign up to this innovation show substack i'll put you in the hat to win a copy of the imperfections and I, i love charles one of my favorite things is when i saw the beautiful illustration of the tree on on the i know that speaks dearly to your heart your work in patagonia and as a conservationist absolutely part of it as well but just the image of that from an imperfection perspective i love that so Bravo to the artist who came up with that one, or if it was yourself, I don't know. It was based on this uh, wonderful
1: uh, old photograph by Ansel Adams of a tree that had stood, you know, through all this, through all this change. And that's what I loved about it.
0: Charles, for people who want to find you, I know you're a busy man. I said that at the top of the show, but where can people find you maybe to reach out about the book? If you ever have any bandwidth. Well, you can either find us at
1: uh, org, or you can find us at uh, com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And um, we love to talk about the topics of the book, as you know, and uh, how grateful I am to get to spend time with you again. It's just been such a pleasure as it always
0: is. Absolutely. And, it, and it's so difficult to arrange the time. Charles is c- constantly traveling all over the world as well, but it's an absolute pleasure. Author of the imperfectionist strategic mindsets for uncertain times, along with his friend and long-term colleague, Rob McLean. Charles Kahn, thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.